Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Tuesday the 27th of January 1981 and Greg McCarty is brought from his cell at Central Police Station for his second interview with Detective Sergeants John Openshaw and Norman Hazard of the CIB Consorting Squad. Detective Openshaw confronts Greg with just some of what they've learned in the two weeks since he was arrested trying to pick up the $1 million Woolworths bombing ransom off Taronga Park Wharf. A couple of bottle collectors have claimed they saw a man in a wetsuit and scuba hood adjusting air tanks at Ashton Park on the night of the 12th of January. To this, Greg replies, quote, That would be right. I was having trouble with the tanks and was adjusting them. Detective Openshaw tells him these bottle collectors say they saw him with an orange underwater propulsion unit. Greg denies he had any such scooter. He reckons the bottle blokes must have mistaken his orange buoyancy vest for this type of device. Moving on, Detective Openshaw says it's been established Greg's air tanks were stolen from the Sea Life store at Huskisson. Greg relents, quote, I told you a lie about the tanks. I didn't bring them from Queensland. The man supplied them. Detective Openshaw asks, Do you mean by the man? The man, Benny? Greg drops his bombshell, quote, No, there was no such person as Benny. It is just the name I used. Benny, public enemy number one in the press for the past fortnight. He's actually public enemy no one. There's no record of how detectives Openshaw and Hazard react to this revelation. My guess is that by now, it's not a surprise. Detective Openshaw pushes on, asking, are you prepared to tell me the names of the other persons involved in this extortion attempt with you? Greg replies, no. No Benny, no other names. Yet, 
this isn't a dead end for the police. Over the past week, the task force to catch the extortionist bomber, dubbed Operation Softly Softly, has been flying under the radar down on the south coast. Now, they reckon they've got Benny, Mr Dunmore, Mr Holden, whatever you want to call him, in their sights. Not that Detective Openshaw is about to reveal this to Greg McHardy. Not when he can keep turning the screws. Detective Openshaw tells him, quote, We have also established that up till the time of your arrest, you were living at 10 Currumbeen Street, Huskisson. These premises are next door to the dive shop where the diving tanks were stolen. Is there anything you wish to say about that? Greg switches his story again. Quote, All right, I will tell you the truth about the tanks. I bought them off a man on the wharf at Huskisson for $300. Detective Openshaw, who was this person? Greg, I don't know his name. Detective Openshaw, when did you buy them? Greg, a couple of months ago. Detective Openshaw turns another screw, telling Greg that two observation squad detectives who were on the Rose Bay Hotel stakeout on the afternoon of the ransom runaround have identified him as the man who was acting oddly in the public bar just before Mr Bridge made the call that sent Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer to Mossman. These observation squad detectives have said that Greg was carrying a green airlines bag like the one found filled with rocks attached to the ransom rope off Taronga Wharf. This is yet more evidence that Greg wasn't just a courier. Detective Openshaw asks him about the Rose Bay Hotel sighting. Quote, Is there anything you wish to say about that? Greg replies, I'm going to deny I was there. Detective Openshaw turns another screw telling Greg about the document referring to $1 million that was found at his mate's place in Melbourne. Detective Openshaw asks, what does that figure represent? Gregory Norman McHardy, Queensland knockabout, court-martialed soldier, minor crook, driver, barman, bookmaker and jack-of-all-trades until he very recently supposedly started an audio-visual business, now replies, quote, that was a million dollar video deal that I was negotiating with 20th Century Fox. Greg might as well be claiming that he owns the Sydney Harbour Bridge and is willing to let it go cheap. But this is his story and he's sticking to it. Why? He tells Detective Openshaw, quote, I'm not trying to be smart. It's just that I can't start naming names. I know I'm going to jail, but at least I'm alive. If I start naming names... I'm as good as dead. I'm Michael Adams and this is part 5 of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. On the same day that Greg was giving these answers, Detective Sergeant Colin Holden, the officer who'd traced the air tanks and scuba hood to the Sea Life store at Huskisson, was seeing a Sydney diving enthusiast named John Betty. A couple of days earlier, this man had been off Clifton Gardens, about a mile from where Greg had been caught. Diving in eight metres of water, he found an orange underwater propulsion unit. The two-piece scooter was unclipped, its halves connected by a single wire. It was though it had been giving someone trouble, and they had opened it up in an attempt to get it going. When that had failed though, the owner had just abandoned it. That was pretty odd to leave such an expensive piece of gear on the bottom of the harbour. John Betty clipped the scooter back together, took it home and called the water police to report his find. 
The news quickly bounced to Detective Sergeant Colin Holden and he came to collect the unit. The lack of corrosion and marine growth on the scooter indicated it hadn't been in the water long, at the most a couple of weeks. That it was orange matched what the bottle blokes had said about the unit the scuba guy had at Ashton Park. The scooter Greg was that very day denying he'd had two detectives open shore and hazard. Fair enough, it could have been a coincidence. Except for one thing. One of the scooter's battery plugs had been covered with blue insulation tape. Blue insulation tape just like the strips that had been found in the men's toilets at the Woolworths Town Hall after the bomb blast. These were offcuts of blue insulation tape, the scientific unit had speculated, from the roll the bomber had used to strap the gel ignite to the detonator and timer or remote device. This was the best physical evidence so far to connect Greg McCarty to the town hall explosion rather than just to the ransom pickup. In the week leading up to Greg's second interview and the scooter discovery, Operation Softly Softly had been focusing on the New South Wales south coast town of Huskisson. There, at least according to a later Daily Telegraph report, undercover detectives had been observing certain locals and gathering information. If that was the case, it wasn't to later come out in court. What the police would be upfront about was that they were interviewing people who'd known Greg McCarty since he'd turned up in the town the previous October. The scuba tanks he was caught wearing had been stolen from the Sea Life store on the 15th of that month. Yet, investigations revealed Greg hadn't arrived in town by then and was still staying with his criminal mate Terry Chard up in Arncliffe. So, who'd stolen the tanks? This person... He might be Mr. Dunmore, a.k.a. Benny, or at least be linked to him. When Greg had arrived in Huskisson, he'd stayed in a holiday home owned by his former pub boss, Bob Evans, earlier that year called a major organised crime figure during the Royal Commission into Drug Trafficking. Side note and flash forward, Bob Evans was not to be a person of interest in the Woolworths bombing investigation. This was despite Greg having been, a few years earlier, Bob's employee at the Dunbarton Castle Inn, which had been named as a hub for a drug trafficking operation. This was despite Bob giving Greg use of his holiday house and suggesting he talk to local John Horobin about diving work for that man's scallop business. And this was despite Greg living at Bob's place when the Woolworth stores in Warilla and Maitland were bombed, respectively, on the 17th and 19th of December. Yet, there was no record of Bob's house being searched by police. An unsigned statement was supposedly taken from Bob by an unnamed detective, though this statement wouldn't be tendered in court. Further, while Bob Evans was supposed to appear at the later committal hearing and the criminal trial, he didn't show it either because he was conveniently out of the country on both occasions. There's no doubt he could have provided, at the very least, important testimony. So, what to make of Bob's near invisibility in these proceedings? We'll come back to this. Anyway, by the grace of Bob Evans, Greg McCarty was in Huskisson from around the end of October 1980. At the start of December, he was at the Huskisson Bowling Club when, via John Horobin, he met another relatively recent arrival to town, Larry Danielson. Where Greg was usually quiet and reserved, Larry was loud and outgoing. Larry Danielson was a fun guy, 
an entertainer and entrepreneur who'd moved to Husky in April 1980 after his manly nightclub and cinema business had failed and his marriage had fallen apart. Larry had come south to take over the live-in management of his mate Rick Poole's Sea Life Lodge, which catered to tourists who wanted to dive, fish and enjoy other marine activities on Jarvis Bay. The lodge was just a few doors down from Rick's Sea Life store, where people could rent the gear they needed, and from where the tanks and other equipment had been stolen on the 15th of October. While Larry was working and living at the lodge, he and Rick Poole had taken out a loan to buy a two-bedroom weatherboard cottage at 10 Currumbeen Street, directly behind the Sea Life store. A sign on the cottage's front wall announced this place was called Tumbledown Dicks. Though Larry and Rick Poole had been friends since early 1978, they had a serious falling out in August 1980. From then on, Larry no longer lived and worked at the Sea Life Lodge, but as co-owner of the cottage, he was free to move in to Tumbledown Dicks. While he had a place to call home in the third week of December, his new mate Greg McCarty was about to be homeless. That was because Bob Evans and his missus were coming down to Huskisson for the Christmas New Year break and they needed the holiday house. So John Horobin suggested to Greg that he should ask Larry to put him up. Tumbledown Dicks was a bit of an open house and Larry often had people crashing on the bunks in his spare room. So Greg asked, Larry said sure, and Greg moved in with his few possessions on the 20th of December 1980. That first night, he slept on the lounge room floor because the spare room was already occupied by one of Larry's friends and this man's wife and kids. The next day though, Larry went to Nowra and bought a second-hand single bed for Greg to sleep on out in the little room on the veranda. That was Larry Danielson through and through. In his professional and personal life, he'd always been the host with the most. Larry Danielson, who just about everybody liked, would later write, quote, I find contentment in having never led a righteous, godly, or sober life. He'd also write, quote, Several times in my life, people have accused me of being a complete bullshitter and of simply making things up. I generally tell these people that simply because they have never seen or done anything interesting doesn't mean that these things don't happen. True enough, but Larry wasn't one to let the truth get in the way of a good story. For starters, Larrikin Larry Danielson wasn't even Larrikin Larry Danielson. He was born Keith Edward Bradford in Wellington, New Zealand on the 1st of March, 1932. Like a lot of Kiwi lads, he grew up hoping to play for the All Blacks. It was this love of rugby that actually set him on the path to being a musician. Or so he'd say. Larry's story was that when he was 20 and at university studying his bachelor's in agricultural sciences, he'd been playing rugby when a bad tackle had left him with a torn ligament in his leg. While recuperating in plaster, he'd joked to his mother that now his rugby dreams were over, he'd have to find another calling, like learning the piano. Dear old mum, she called his bluff by going out and getting him a big box of sheet music. With absolutely no idea about notes and chords and such things, Larry, leg in plaster, got on his motorbike and rode into town to buy a book about music. On his way home, this being New Zealand, he crashed into a sheep and broke his leg really badly. During his now much lengthier recovery, Larry learned music and he found that it came pretty easily to him. 
By the time he was back on his feet properly, he could play dozens and dozens of songs. This is a nice story, but it's not without a few issues. On the 1st of December 1943, the local rag The Hut News carried a little report on the Waiwatu Townswomen's Guild Christmas Party at St Paul's Hall. After attendees at this soiree had enjoyed a few singers and a one-act play, quote, the final item was a piano accordion solo by Keith Bradford, for which he received a recall. Over the next four years, there were another nine references in that newspaper to young master Keith Bradford's, quote, remarkable talent on the piano accordion. He even won a Hutt Valley musical prize. So, Larry was playing for audiences long before university. That is, if he actually went to university. A later police report said his education finished at fifth form, after which he got a certificate as a wool classer. So, it appears that for whatever reason, Keith downplayed his early musical talents while overstating his educational qualifications. The accounts do at least converge in him being a wool classer. Larry was to say that after university, this wool-classing work took him to Argentina in 1953 and then onwards to England. He'd been planning to use his return ticket in mid to late 1954 when he wandered into a pub and, after scarfing some pies, pretended to be part of a band, with this bluff actually leading to him playing with the outfit. Larry found that he liked the musical life, so he never used that ticket home and for the next five years gigged around England. The slight problem with this story is that on the 2nd of August 1955, Keith Edward Bradford was found guilty of attempted false pretenses and false declaration. This conviction was recorded in Lower Hutt in New Zealand. Keith was fined £50 and given two years probation. Those two years weren't quite up when, in Wellington, on the 24th of June 1957, he faced three charges of false pretenses and two charges of theft and forgery. He got probation of two years on each charge. Of course, these offences don't fit with Larry being in England from 1954. But with his probation up, maybe he really was there in early 1961 to meet as Larry would like to claim, a handsome young bloke named Peter, while he and a few other lads were having drinks and playing cards. During this session, the phone kept ringing. The person on the other end was after this Peter chap, saying with increasing urgency that he had to come to work. Eventually, this Peter relented and told the caller to send a taxi. It was only later that Larry realised this Peter was Peter O'Toole, and the work he'd been late for was a read-through of a little film called Lawrence of Arabia. The future Larry of Australia, sometime soon after this, for a short time owned a quarry in New Zealand. Foreshadowing things to come, this enterprise went into liquidation after six months. In the mid-60s, Keith Bradford moved to Australia. There's no doubt about this because on the 9th of September 1966, in Sydney Quarter Sessions, he was convicted of three counts of false pretenses and sentenced to three years behind bars. He was released after two years. Once he was back on the street, Keith changed his name by deed poll. Thus, at the age of 26 was born one Larry Burton Danielson. Seeking new horizons and further reinvention, Larry took himself off to Papua New Guinea, where he lived in Leigh and worked for ANSET as a sales rep. 
That was his day job. By night, though, Larry was entertaining expat audiences at local clubs. He could actually make the electric piano accordion sound good and could also play guitar and an upright piano. That was more than welcome in entertainment-starved Papua New Guinea, but what made Larry such a favourite was his quick wit and that lovable larrikin nature that made him a born storyteller. It endeared him to a lot of people. One of these was beautiful, dark-haired Hilary Austin, who agreed to marry Larry around 1970. The happy couple took out a lease on land in Ley and enjoyed the expat party lifestyle. Dick Kelly was a young accountant working in PNG back then. It was a good lifestyle for the young people. Um, the money was good. You could say it was just life was one big party. Everybody was there pretty much having a good time. Uh, water sports were big because everybody, every second person had a boat. People spent a lot of time on the water, a lot of drinking, obviously, a lot of partying. You know, it was, it was, the social life was you know, probably the, the best, best I've ever had, to be honest, at the time. In these pre-independence, pre-politically correct years, Larry was credited with penning what was regarded, at least by expats, as PNG's unofficial national anthem. Kaikai the Buai, aka Cheerful Chimbu, was a send-up of Waltzing Matilda. In June 1971, Nan Hutton, longtime columnist for Melbourne's The Age, reported seeing Larry perform this tune on a visit to PNG. Quote, the song goes through all the verses and is translated into a polyglot of pigeon and strine by a lively character called Larry Danielson. By day, he acts as Ansett's sales representative at Lay, and by night leads his swinging group at the Steakhouse, a tropic night spot haunted for me by the ghost of Somerset Maugham and plots of drama and illicit love. That night at Lay, the steak was good. Danielson and his boys were giving out, and on the dance floor, I scented at least two scandals. Dick Kelly, who knew Larry Danielson, went to a lot of his gigs. You know, people would uh, would, would go to go and see him and just have a good time. He had fun with it, and um, and everybody enjoyed enjoyed it. Here's what Dick Kelly and other members of Larry's audience heard at this place and time. Many years ago, the Australians came to Papua New Guinea and they found a song written on the limestone cave walls of Kundiawa. And they found words like Kai Kai the Buai, chewing beetle nut. Billum, which is a bag you carry your goodies in like your post curu and your twist tobacco. Kia, well, he used to be God, but he's now extinct. A wheelie wheel is a bicycle. And a ditty man, he's an agricultural officer. And a book book is a crocodile. And the hero of the whole song was the cheerful chimbu from Kundiawa. And the Australians took this song back with them and changed all the words to suit themselves. But this is how it used to go. Once a cheerful chimbu came by a mangrove swamp under the shade of a coconut tree. And he sang as he watched and he waited while his cow got boiled. You'll come a kai kai the blue eye with Kai Kai the Boo Eye, Kai Kai the Boo Eye, you'll come a Kai Kai the Boo Eye with me. He sang as he watched, and he waited while his cock got boiled. You'll come a Kai Kai the Boo Eye with me. Up came a book book to wallow in the mangrove swamp. I've jumped our shimbo friend and grabbed him with 
Over the next few years, Larry's popularity grew, with a generation of expats fondly remembering his afternoon into evening sessions at the Gateway Hotel in Port Moresby. Larry was also known for being a party animal par excellence in a place teeming with such colourful characters. One time, he took his little Datsun out onto a runway and did a drag race with a light plane. Another time, he brought the house down when he came out in drag to entertain the crowd at the launch of Port Moresby's boat show. Then, there were the dozens, hundreds maybe, of what he called nice days. This was when ringleader Larry would take out a boat nicknamed Blue Hills. The vessel was so called because, like the long-running radio soapy of that name back in Australia, there was no end to the effing stories. These stories would be told and made on Blue Hills as Larry and his mates and their wives and girlfriends headed out from Port Moresby for fishing, diving, barbecuing and drinking. Lots of drinking, with each bloke expected to bring at least one case of South Pacific beer for the afternoon shenanigans. Here's Dick Kelly. He was the sort of guy that, you know, everybody wanted to get to know. Everybody, everyone liked him. You know, just one of those other party animals, as you'd probably call him. But um, yeah, he's, he'd do anything just to have a bit of fun and, uh, and he'd get others involved with him. He was one of the real characters of the time up there and everybody knew him and liked him and he was just one of those, one of those blokes that, uh, you know, he was everybody's mate. Look, he was a hell of a nice guy and entertaining and, you know, and back then he was just, he fitted in perfectly into that environment up there. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Papua New Guinea wasn't all fun and games for Larry, who loved spending money he didn't have, whether it was to shout everybody drinks or to bankroll his latest business idea. By February 1974, he was bankrupt. Larry's car was repossessed and two months later, he and Hillary lost their land for non-payment of survey fees. Shortly after this, she changed her name to Diana Danielson. Larry might have been up the Fly River without a paddle, but his lust for life and a good time remained undiminished. He kept working for ANSET, reportedly in a public relations capacity, and kept plugging away at his music. And this led to another Larry legend. Soon after Papuan independence in September 1975, he regularly played a satirical song about the country's leaders at his Gateway Hotel gigs. Some politicians took offence and clamoured for him to be deported. As Pacific Islands Monthly magazine would later report, quote, The then Prime Minister, Michael Samaro, called Danielson to his office and told him to sing the song. Danielson claimed the PM couldn't stop laughing after hearing the song. Mr Samaro closed the incident, telling a newsman afterward, quote, A bit of humour doesn't hurt any of us. The following September, Larry announced the release of his first album. 
called Travelin' Music, it featured Papuan man Billy Isay on drums. The album had been partly recorded during live sessions at the Gateway Hotel and partly put down in more studio-like conditions at the Burns Philp Club. The disc included Cheerful Chimbu and other Larry favourites. Travelin' Music sold out its first pressing in a few weeks and Larry was now something of a bona fide Papua New Guinean pop star. What we're hearing in the background right now is the first track from the album called Larry's Tune, aka Travelin' Music. And Travelin' was what Larry was about to do. Despite his local success, he was moving to Australia. Why? Maybe after a decade it had to do with being sick of the place. There is truth in humour and this song, Bloody Port Moresby, which lists many of PNG's problems, at least from an expat's perspective, was one of Larry's favourites. This bloody town is a bloody curse, no bloody trains, no bloody bus. The airlines are a bloody mess and bloody port Moresby. The bloody roads, they're bloody bad, half the whiteies bloody men. Make sure for bloody sad, bloody port Moresby. It's bloody wind or bloody rain, no bloody curbs, no bloody trains. The admin's got no bloody brains, bloody port Larry might have been sick of Port Moresby, but he also wanted to be a bigger fish in the bigger pond that was Sydney. How, after being bankrupt, was he going to bankroll his schemes and dreams? According to Detective Sergeant John Anderson's later Australian Police Magazine article, Larry reportedly sank a boat that he owned in PNG in order to pocket an inflated insurance payout. Though I've not found any record of this in the available PNG newspapers of the time, two of Larry's later Sydney mates, Rick Poole and Sid Evis, both independently told me that he'd told them about this scam. Larry, Diana and Chris came to Sydney in March 1977 and they took a top floor apartment in the Matthew Bly building on the Esplanade in Manly. In terms of living in the 70s, the Danielsons were living large in one of the most sought-after high-rises in Sydney. The place had 180-degree views of the harbour. Larry bought a baby grand piano that held pride of place in his pad. To get around, he got himself a sweet, low-slung sports car, which, depending on who's doing the remembering, was red or yellow and was a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or a Maserati. Whatever it was, it was fast and powerful and it made Larry look like the coolest cat around. Nursery owner Sid Evis lived next door to Larry and his wife and child at the Matthew Bly building and he got to know the family reasonably well. He was good fun. He was a socialite. He was what I would call a social butterfly, frittering from here to there. Um, he seemed to know a lot of people. He threw money around like it was going out of fashion. But he wanted to be seen as the big I am, the big successful larrikin businessman who um, couldn't do anything wrong. So this was the sort of lifestyle that he was leading, 
seemingly well beyond his means, um, but a flamboyant character. It, it was all to do with money. He was always trying to do something which made money quick um, and made a lot of it. Larry's first business idea in Sydney was to hold rock festivals under a big tent. So he had a massive marquee made by a company in Brisbane. This mega tent was meant to hold bands and 1,000 punters. It took months to make and cost around $11,000, which is $66,000 in today's money. In September 1977, Larry told the Sydney Morning Herald that his tent, which he'd called the Sound Pavilion, would provide youth with a much-needed big venue for rock gigs, starting with a three-day festival he was going to put on the following month in Newcastle. Sadly, his mega-tent music business folded before it got started. That's because when Larry took possession of the marquee, he had major problems putting the thing up. He sent the tent, which weighed something like 800 kilograms, back to the makers and then set about suing them. These proceedings went nowhere fast and the dispute would drag on while the marquee remained unused in Queensland. It was at this time, the start of 1978, that Larry met Coogee dive shop owner Rick Poole via a mutual acquaintance from Papua New Guinea. Rick told me recently that he and Larry got on well and they'd catch up every few months for a beer and a meal. Theirs wasn't a business relationship at this time. Larry was just good fun to be around, not least for his wicked sense of humour and fondness for a blue joke and a gross-out prank. One of these, Rick told me, involved throwing an old pair of underpants that he'd used to polish his brown shoes at a poor barmaid. The woman screamed and the pub was in an uproar as people grabbed tongs trying to pick up what they thought, well, you get it. It wasn't exactly sophisticated humour, but then again, this was a period when Blankety Blanks was a hit TV show. There was no doubt the Sound Pavilion debacle had been a major setback for Larry, but his dreams of being a rock impresario had not been dashed. Just half a K from where he lived stood the 800-odd seat Manly Hoyt Cinema. Movies had been shown in this handsome three-storey art modern building since 1935. In autumn 1978, Hoyt's was moving to new premises. Now, the age of the multiplex was dawning. Larry jumped at the chance to take over the lease and remake the venue in his own image, particularly after he discovered an awesome legal loophole. Under a theatre alcohol licence, which was easier to get and far cheaper than a hotel licence, he could serve patrons drinks from the bar, before the show and at intermission, just like, say, the State Theatre. Further, if he officially operated the venue as a social club, then the theatre licence would be cheaper and easier to get still. So Larry got the licence in the name of, of all things, the local scuba club. He renamed the venue Flix, clearing out the seats in the stalls, but retaining them on the balcony level for cinema patrons. Being able to have a tequila sunrise or a Harvey wallbanger in the same place you watched a flick like Damien Omen 2 or The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith was a pretty sophisticated novelty back then. Andre Evis is now one of Australia's best-known television cinematographers. 
Back then, he was just a kid, and he'd stay with his dad, Sid, at the Matthew Bly Apartments during school holidays and have the time of his life in the orbit of larger-than-life Larry, who'd pay him and his brother really good money to work in the cinema bar, delivering drinks and cleaning up glasses. Larry would also look out for Andre and his brother. Like, Larry was a... He was actually quite a good guy. Like, I mean, I can remember once as a kid, we were, you know, running around the streets of Manly and we got in a fight. Somebody actually beat me up and I got punched in the nose by this, you know, much older kid. And I remember going back and the first person I bumped into was Larry. And I explained to Larry what happened and he was like horrified. We jumped in his sports car and we drove all around Manly and Larry was you know, hell-bent on catching this, um, you know, teenager that punched me in the nose. And, like, I was like, okay, mate, let's, you know, we're not going to fight him, let's give up. But, no, Larry was, we must have driven around for three hours. <laughs> Imagine driving around Manly, the 12-year-old in a, in a Ferrari, um, <laughs> looking for this kid that had punched you. Larry's, you know, threatening, if we catch him, mate, don't worry, I'll sort him out. You know, it was, <laughs> it was quite bizarre, really. <laughs> he was fun, for sure. Like, I mean, anybody that employs a 12-year-old... And, pays them really well. Um, like I said, I mean, he used to let, because Dad owned a nursery, and so he'd let my brother and I sell seedlings out the front of the nursery. You know, um, Everybody thought we were a couple of kids growing these plants by ourselves, and of course we were selling everything in one day. It wasn't until about day, like week five or something, that the council came up and tried to hit us with having a permit. Larry jumped to our defence and said, you know, there's a couple of kids just making a couple of dollars. Like, I mean, really? You know, having somebody better to pick on, you know? In reality, Larry didn't make much money from the cinema, but Flix really came into its own as a music venue on Friday, Saturday, and some Sunday and public holiday nights. The place was, along with the Coogee Bay Hotel, the biggest venue in Sydney. But it was better than the Coogee Bay Hotel because its origins as a cinema meant that everyone had an unobstructed view of the bands. It was easy to get to the bar, and outside there was plenty of parking. At this time, Flix had no live music competition on the northern beaches. And then there was the fact that, as it was a theatre, under-18s could buy a ticket. Once inside, well, it was easy to buy a drink or ten. Rock bands would play on the little stage in this massive auditorium while the lounge bar became a nightclub that was open till 3am and offered disco dancing, complete with flashing lights and a glass dance floor. These days, venues supposedly adhere to the responsible service of alcohol. Back then, not so much. But even in 1978-79, Larry's promotions had to be sailing pretty close to the wind, such as the one that he advertised, in the Sydney Morning Herald no less, that offered punters all the free red wine they could drink. Even more surreal from today's standpoint was this startup venue's incredible live music lineup. Then a young booker, John Sinclair, got these acts for flicks. We're talking about the best bands in the best period of their lives. John Sinclair's not exaggerating. On Friday the 4th of May 1978, for a few bucks at the door, you could see Ivor Davies and his band Flowers, later to go on to greater fame once they renamed themselves Icehouse. The very next night, you could catch that hard-charging bald fella, Peter Garrett, and his band Midnight Oil, belting out Run By Night and other tracks they'd record the following month on their debut self-titled album. Flix was off to a good start, but it was no fluke. How's this for a week's entertainment? 
On Friday the 28th of September 1978, you could pay a few bucks to see Cold Chisel rocking out into the wee hours. Come back the next night and it was Jojo Zepp and the Falcons on the stage. Sunday night, John English. Monday night, the Angels. The next Friday night, Midnight All were back playing another of their regular flick shows. Other artists who took to the stage included Reels, MySex, Air Supply, Jimmy and the Boys, Split Ends and Mental as Anything. Then there was that one time that Australian Crawl and Mondo Rock supported The Knack, whose My Sharona was then becoming 1979's biggest international hit single. Dave Warner, then starting out, played two gigs at Flicks in 1978, which he still regards as high points of his early career. When I spoke to Dave recently, he told me that Larry was part of the appeal. While artists usually didn't see owners, Larry took Dave to the bar and laid on the drinks and the chat. He treated you like a mate rather than an employee. From February 1979, John Sinclair worked for Larry directly to book bands, a service he also provided for the Coogee Bay Hotel. So John would be at Flix on Friday and Saturday nights and meet with Larry once a week. He was king of the world and he wanted to be seen to be king of the world. That's why he would hang out with the bands, you know, uh, for reflected glory. He'd shout the bar. I mean, you know, drinks are on to me, you know, at the top of his voice, you know. But that was just part of his thing, you know. His ego was such that it demanded that he do that, you know. Sid Evis got a similar vibe. When we went to the nightclub, we would bump into quite a lot of um, then celebrities, you know, uh, television singers, um, show people. And so, uh, and this also took place when um, Diana and Larry had moved out of, of Matthew Bly into a flat above the Flick Cinema, which was a pretty big place. They had some pretty big parties there. Um, and there were showmen, show people there. And so Larry was the centre of attention because um, you know, he was the catalyst. He, he was the guy that organised all these things. Flick's terrific gigs brought in the punters. Host with the most, Larry brought in the party animals. Larry was making a lot of money. Here's John Sinclair. You know, he could make three, four $4,000 a night, three nights a week without a problem. And that's, you know, that's 79. I mean, you could buy a house in Annandale for 25 grand. So much cash being flung around at a venue that was skirting the licensing laws drew another class of people, corrupt Sydney police. John Sinclair. He had found a wrinkle inside the licensing laws that allowed him to operate and uh, and exploited it, and somebody's nose of the cops. The cops were there every weekend. He just ran it, you know, and 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 got away with it by paying by paying the cops. As a kid, Andre Evis had a close-up view of Larry in the embrace of the crooked arms of the law. Occasionally, I remember Larry having meetings with policemen. And it was sort of weird, like the barman would go, oh, can you take you know, those VBs over to that table? And I, you know, I'd go over and say, excuse me, who, you know, who ordered the VBs? This 12-year-old kid serving beers, you know. And Because I, I remember them being cops. One of them was in uniform, the other guys were in suits. Um, you know, but it was just weird. I was tipped $20. And at that stage, when you're, when you're 12 years old, $20 was a lot of money. <laughs> and I took it back to the bar thinking, well, you know, that was for the beers. And the bloke said, no, no, that's your tip, mate. It's like, really? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, 
I'd always make myself available when those boys came in. The only one I can remember was, I'm pretty sure it was um, a guy because he had a large, a massive gut. And I think pretty sure it was Chuck Fowler. Um, the other guys, I just knew them as cops because, A, they were in suits and you could see sort of um, heart, gun harnesses under their, you know, in their chest. There wasn't in those days when they had them on their belt. It was, you know, sort of under the chest. Um, you know, I can even remember once at one stage, you know, was, the pistol was on the chair with his jacket, you know, so I knew they were cops, um, which I sort of found very strange because in the middle of the day, um, sometimes when there was a movie on, <laughs> there was guys in there having a meeting, <laughs> having beers at sometimes at 11 o'clock in the morning. Something said into me, this isn't quite right, you know, I mean, a lot of these things just don't add up. His dad, Sid, also got an idea of what was going on. We became more and more ingrained in this sort of um, nightclub lifestyle, for want of a better word, and we noticed that regularly, like every week, two guys came in and sat at the bar and were provided with drinks, which they didn't pay for. It transpires, we found out that they were policemen. They come in for their um, weekly um, handouts, to facilitate the licence being um, maintained in the club. And um, so that became an accepted part of the scene in the nightclub. It sounds blatant and shocking now, but back then, this was just the way business was done in New South Wales. But Larry and local law enforcement officers seemed to have an uneasy relationship, and it really soured when his sports car was stolen. Larry was beside himself because he'd had $9,000 in cash beneath the front seat. Why he had such a sum, equivalent to $46,000 today, in the car, which, as usual, was parked on the street outside Flicks, was not explained. Police found Larry's car and returned it to him the next day. The cash, presuming it was ever really there, was gone. Larry made no secret of the fact that he believed the cops had stolen his money, telling both Rick Poole and Sid Evis this version of events. Public airing of such allegations can't have pleased his police regulars. Larry was on even feistier form when the boys in blue turned up at Flicks one night to hassle him for allowing underage drinking on the premises. According to Detective Sergeant John Anderson's later account in Australian Police magazine, quote, when censured one evening for this, he incited the audience to chant, they can't put shit on us, and proceedings were instituted for inciting a riot. Ensuring such proceedings didn't go ahead may very well have involved a fat envelope handed to a man in a suit. While Flicks looked successful, Larry was already deeply in debt and facing increased competition from Northern Beach's pub rock venues, the Manly Vale and the Royal Antler. John Sinclair. I think he ran the place week to week. You know, I mean, I think he had uh, had no money, and that you know, if he had a big house and he made some money, that was good. If he didn't, well, then he was scratching. Um, he would keep, you know, ten balls in in the air, and if two of them landed, he was okay. But if four of them landed, he was in big trouble. You know. Sid Evis was there to see Larry's world slip away. I think he was desperate. You know, here he was. The, the club was starting to lose um, popularity. I think his mindset was to move on to the next thing, whatever that was going to be. And, uh, and, and how can I get out of this without losing too much money? 
Larry's flashy sports car was repossessed because he couldn't make the payments, just like his car had been seized back in PNG. According to Detective Sergeant John Anderson's article, Larry owed one alcohol supplier alone $16,000, which is a whopping 83 grand in today's money. Larry had splashed around cash he didn't have and splashed around booze he hadn't paid for. By May 1979, his company was quietly wound up and Diana officially took over the license and the lease. The cinema operation ceased, though the live music side of things was to limp on until early 1980, when Flix closed its doors for good. Larry had lost a lot. The lovely art modern building that for half a century had shown Flix before Larry turned it into the ill-fated Flix venue was put up for sale. The new owner demolished it for an office block. Larry and Diana's relationship was likewise destroyed. She'd put up with his self-destructive shenanigans in Papua New Guinea, but the flick saga had pushed her too far. Sid Evers told me that the last straw was when she found out that Larry had forged her signature on business paperwork. They split in April 1980, and Larry moved to Huskisson, taking up Rick Poole's offer to be the live-in manager of the Sea Life Lodge. Rick told me that Larry was an immediate success in this role. He was such a good host, doing the food and being generally entertaining, that people actually came down because of him. Everything was hunky-dory, and Larry and Rick got a loan together to buy the tumble-down Dick's Cottage. Then, in August 1980, Larry had what he called a falling out with Rick. Rick told me it was less a difference of opinion and more the discovery that Larry had been seriously misappropriating money from the Sea Life Lodge. Rick sacked him and they were done as business partners and as mates. Thing was, Larry co-owned the cottage so Rick couldn't stop him from moving in there. As Rick lived and worked primarily in Sydney, Larry's presence in the cottage didn't present an immediate problem. Tumbledown Dicks was a bit of an open house, people drifting in and out, staying a day or two or three, turning up unannounced and leaving just as casually. Despite his recent travails, Larry was enjoying himself. On a nice day, he'd go to the beach or do a spot of fishing. There was always someone to have a beer with at the Huskisson Bowling Club or the RSL, or Larry would just share a cask of wine with whichever of his mates was staying in the spare room. Though he and Diana had split, Larry still spent as much time as he could with his son Chris, bringing the boy down for weekends and for parts of the school holidays. In August 1980, a most extraordinary thing happened when he took Chris on holiday to Queensland and they went to SeaWorld. By pure chance, Larry said, he ran into his mother, who was holidaying from New Zealand. This was the first time he had seen her since 1952. At least, that's what Larry said, though, as we've seen, his account of his leaving Wellington at this time should be taken with a grain of salt. The upshot, though, was that she said he should contact his younger brother, Alan, who ran a sporting goods store in southwestern Sydney. Larry did that, and the brothers reunited, again seeing each other for what he said was the first time in 28 years. This happy occasion took place at Alan's house, supposedly in September of 1980. Larry used the opportunity to ask his long-lost sibling if he could do him a favour. Would he be able to sell some diving equipment that Larry had accumulated through his sports store? Alan said, sure thing, and over the next few months, he'd move a bit of this gear. 
Larry might have been making a few bucks from the second-hand dive equipment his brother was now selling, but he was still dreaming of making big money with that marquee. In November 1980, he talked to his new Huskisson mate John Horriban about the viability of leasing 40 acres of local land and staging a big jazz festival. In the meantime, Larry had restarted his own musical career by doing gigs at local clubs. He still had the goods. With just a few shows under his belt, Larry was proving as popular with South Coast locals as he'd been with expats back in PNG. Then, in early December, Larry was drinking at the bowling club when he met Greg McHardy via their mutual mate, John Horriban. Not long after that, Larry went to a party that Greg held at Bob Evans' holiday home. Larry only learned bits and pieces about Greg, and this, he'd say, didn't include the bloke's surname. But then again, Husky was that sort of place. You'd be known by your first name, and if someone couldn't remember that, then mate, digger, or cobber would do. What Larry did find out about Greg in passing might have made him think they had a bit in common. Like himself, Greg was also recently separated from his wife, who'd been his business partner and with whom he had a young child. Like Larry, he'd left it all behind. Woman, kid, licensed venue and washed up in Huskisson. Unlike Larry though, Greg was about to be without a roof over his head because Bob Evans needed his holiday house. Greg asked... Could he stay at Tumbledown Dicks? Larry said, sure. So Greg moved his few possessions in on the 20th of December and slept that night on the lounge room floor. Exactly one month later, at 9am on the 20th of January 1981, one week after Greg McHardy had been arrested off Taronga Park Wharf, Operation Softly Softly Task Force Detectives rolled up to 10 Currumbeen Street, Huskisson and knocked on Larry Danielson's door. They had a lot of questions. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part five of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. Many thanks to Andre and Sid Evis, Dick Kelly, Rick Poole, Dave Warner, and John Sinclair for their help with this instalment. Thanks also to Murdoch Riley of Viking Seven Seas Music in New Zealand for permission to use Larry's songs from the Travelin' Music album, which you can find on Spotify and iTunes. The next instalment in this episode will be released very soon. Before it drops, I'd love it if you could do me a favour and help Forgotten Australia reach more people. It's easy. Just tell a friend about the show and or leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.